Well, great thanks to Elder Mark, Elder Dobson, for filling the pulpit last week faithfully. I know the attention that he gives to God's Word, and I'm thankful that he brought that to bear on Psalm 92 last week in my stead, and appreciate the chance to get away with the family. And though I was dealing with phone calls from <laughs> my dad and my sister, um, uh, more my dad, my sister was just giving me updates, but... Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it was good to be away and good to be with the family after a challenging year and before what is certain to be another challenging year. So uh, anyway, thank you, Mark, for uh, filling last week. Well, this week we come to Psalm 93 and this short but wonderful psalm that I hope today is an encouragement to you. Uh, we've already read the text uh, this morning. But uh, I hope that this text is an encouragement to you because it is a text that magnifies and brings to light the sovereignty of our God. Again, the text simply begins, the Lord reigns. I think of, I think of um, the words of Paul in Romans where he's quoting the words of the prophet Isaiah when he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. And if I asked you, maybe before this, if we we're in Sunday school right now, and I said, what is the good news that, that uh, make the feet of these proclaiming it so beautiful? What would we say? And, and uh, if we didn't have the context of this, we'd say a lot of things that are really good news, right? When we think about the word good news, we know it's the word gospel, right? Um, and so we would, I'm going to guess if, if I asked us, we would start spouting off the gospel. And if I asked you, well, what is the gospel? What is the good news of the Christian faith? We would immediately go right to the cross, right? We would say, well, God sent his only begotten son to die for sinners so that sinners may, may not stand under judgment, but rather inherit eternal life. And, and praise God, that is gospel. That's, that's good news. It's the good news. And yet, Paul, when he does that in Romans 10, and, and you'll remember that's right after he says, you know, for all who, who confess with their mouth and, you know, that Jesus is the Lord and believe in their heart that God raised from the dead, they'll be saved. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And, you know, then, but how, how will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear unless, you know, that whole business? So it's after all that that he then quotes, you know, he talks about the gospel of believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and, and we've got to go out, we've got to tell. And then he reaches back to Isaiah and he says, and how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who proclaim the good news, who say the Lord reigns, our God reigns. The good news of the gospel, yes, of course it's Christ. I'm not pitting these two against each other. But it's interesting that Isaiah simply puts it, the good news, what makes the feet of these proclaimers so great is that they are shouting as they run, our God reigns. The image in that case is of those messengers running back to bring the news of a distant battle. And the people in the city are waiting to receive the news and they see the messenger coming. And you can kind of judge by his feet. <laughs> Is he kind of dragging along like he doesn't want to have to bring the news of a, a terrible defeat? You can kind of tell by the, his stride, his gait, his pace. But the messenger who's coming to tell you that we have won the decisive victory. His feet are beautiful. 
they're just flying. It doesn't even look like they're touching the ground. He's just, he's just cruising along in excitement. And we can see him coming and we can see the joy even in his feet. How beautiful are the feet on the mountains of those who proclaim the good news. And the good news is this, brothers and sisters. Our God reigns. He is victorious. He is seated sovereignly on his throne. And every foe has been cast off. Every foe is defeated. And blessed is the man or woman who comes bringing that message to the world. And in a very real sense, that is the message we bring to the, to a world that is afflicted by all these principalities and powers. Our God reigns. It's a beautiful text. And I, I hope that it encourages you encourages you this morning in whatever crisis or challenge you are in the middle of or have just come out of or about to head into. If you only remember anything today, may it just be these three words, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Well, our text today is like a sandwich, although it's like a, the sandwich is a poor metaphor here because it's a, it's an anti-sandwich. <laughs> the, so the whole metaphor is going to break down. You're going to be like, Bill, why'd you even mention it? I don't know. It's because it's what came to my mind. But it's an anti-sandwich. It's like the best parts are on the outside. This is almost never true, although I'm a big bread guy. So I really like good bread. If I got good bread, I can handle almost any sandwich. But that's not the case. The, the meat is what the sandwich is about, right? The bread is a, is a vehicle for the meat in most sandwiches, but not so in this text. It's actually the frame that is the beautiful thing here. It's actually the, 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 the bread, the outside of the sandwich, that is the thing we want to focus on. And the anti-sandwich means that the, the lesser thing is in the middle. But that's what we have in this text. And I want us to kind of jump into the middle of the anti-sandwich uh, and deal with that first. It frames, well, it doesn't frame. It's, it's, it's framed by, see, see, all the metaphors are collapsing on me now. They're just all, I'm such a metaphor guy, and they're all falling. It's all coming back and hitting me now. The middle part is what sets off the frame. It allows us to celebrate, not that the thing itself wouldn't be celebratory. It is. But it's this middle part that then helps us go out and really delight in the frame. So I want us to think that it starts with the Lord reigning. It ends with the Lord reigning. And then in the middle we've got the life that we have to live. We've, we live in the middle of this amazing, beautiful frame. So again, let me just read the text. The Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. There's our first slice of bread on this sandwich. And then, and then we have the, the middle part, right, inside the frame here. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. So verse 3 gives us this middle section, this problem, the tumult, the storm. And then we jump back out to the other side of the frame or to the other side of the sandwich. The Lord is mightier. Than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. So let's jump into the middle in verse 3. Because it's here that the psalmist, after, 
after celebrating and just beginning with pure victory, right? The Lord reigns. He just begins with an, a statement of just victory at the outset. But after saying that, he jumps in in verse 3 to the, the reality in which he's living. He's living in the midst of a storm. He's living in a world in which the floods are lifting up and the waves are crashing down. And it's a tumultuous world and it's a scary world. It's a world full of trials and problems of every sort that are crashing down on the psalmist and in his world. And we don't need to be told, you don't need me to tell you, that while it's not identical, it's analogous, but nonetheless, this is the world in which we live. And boy, I mean, are we feeling it? It just feels like everything is unstable right now. It's I'm living, I'm living in bizarro world. For those listening on tape, it's 2021. <laughs> You'll remember this year. It'll go down in history. But it just seems like everything is unstable. I, whenever I check for me, it's just I go on Twitter. I just check and see what, because I know if something's happening in the world, it'll pop up in the newsfeed. And I go through there and it's just like, it's always something new. It's always something disastrous. And it's not just because it's Twitter. That's the commentary side. I'm just looking at the th- events that are happening. It, every, I'll walk out of here. Something else is going on. Some other disaster, some other piece of legislation that's going to devastate the economy, some other economic news, some other news in the rest of the world, something happening over here, some new disease, some new development with the disease, some failing with the, I mean, it's just everything is unstable. It is like the waves have lifted up and they're crashing down. It's a big old storm. On top of that, again, as Christians, we have to deal with a culture that is turning against its sort of Judeo-Christian roots. It's, 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 it's a teenage uh, um, society now that's starting to hate mom and dad, right? It's starting to hate the mom and dad of its culture and its roots and want, wanting to now grow out and be an adult and step away from it and kind of now intentionally cast it off. And we're having to deal with that because here we are still anchored to these things and we feel that wind and waves and storm crashing down upon us. So in many ways, we can very much identify with what the psalmist is going through. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. Perhaps for him, the floods that are overwhelming him are the voices, right? It's We see this, you know, if you read through the psalms, you get this a lot, that one of the things the psalmist is constantly having to deal with is false accusation, with brothers betraying him with their words, uh, so it very much might be the floods that he is dealing with particularly are the words of betrayers, the words of his people turning against him, people he trusted falsely accusing him. Very very well, maybe that. It's interesting that in that Revelation 12 passage, the flood, the torrent that comes after the people of God comes from the mouth of the serpent, right? The mouth of the devil. He opens his mouth and spews out this torrential flood and the early church had to deal with this they had to deal with all kinds of false accusations that were being spit out against them that were leading to their imprisonments that were justifying their punishments how do you how do you just take decent people and throw them to lions like how do you get away with that in a society think about that right we t- we just think back you think well the in the roman empire christians were persecuted yeah but how do, 
they, they weren't like radicals. D- these were your neighbors. And now they're being put in prison. They're having their property stripped away. They're, they're being thrown to wild beasts and some horrible, horrible tortures in the, in the early church. How, how do you, how do you justify that? You could justify that just by brute strength. Just say, well, we're Rome. We do what we want, but you still have to keep a people at bay. And when, when you're just killing or torturing decent citizens, it starts to create a rumble. How do you, how do you bring that kind of destruction down on people just because they, they worship a God that doesn't even seem to be right. They don't have temples like we have in these kinds of, well, I'll tell you how you do it with words. You destroy them by telling, by saying things like they're cannibals. And that makes us chuckle. Like, oh, who would, who would believe they're cannibals? Well, that's the kind of rumors you spread. Well, they have these church services and you don't see what's going on in there, but in there they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of somebody. And that's the kind of thing they spread in the early church. Oh, they're incestuous. They marry their brothers and sisters, which of course we do because we marry our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But these are the kinds of things that were being spread about the early church so that when you arrest the nice old guy over there and you take him away and they say, yeah, but did you know he was an incestuous cannibal? I mean, it's like, like, I didn't know that. Okay, hey, he seemed like a decent guy, but okay. This is what you do, right? You, you, you spew the words. You, you, you create the context in which then that kind of horror can come and that kind of persecution could come. And perhaps the psalmist is dealing with some of that because it's a voice. It's not just that the waves are lifting up. They're lifting up their voices against him. The floods have lifted up <clears throat> their waves. He again frames even that. That's the center of the center. So it must be words that he was having to deal with. But this is this is the nature. I, I, this is why I chose First Peter three as our word of exhortation today, because before we get to the frame, the beautiful frame of this text, we have to reckon with the middle, and we have to look at this and say, "Okay, you're not alone in the midst of your storm." This is what Christians have been singing about and writing about for generations. This is the context in which we are to serve God. It's it's the storm. It is interesting to me that Jesus, and we'll come back to this when Jesus comes to storm. I thought about using that as our as our New Testament reading today. <clears throat> but when Jesus calms the storm in that event, you'll remember there was no necessary plan to get in the boat and go out to sea that day. But Jesus led them out there. Jesus said, let's go, boys. Get in the boat. We're going out. And then Jesus went out there and fell asleep. And the storm came. But in a very real sense, Jesus led them out there. In some sense, he had them right where he wanted them to be. And there's, a, there's an amazing picture there for us. Okay, In the midst of the storm, you are right where God wants you to be. Now, a lot of times this doesn't make sense to us. There's no way God could want me to be here. Yeah, I know, but you don't have his perspective. He reigns. Don't forget that. Just jump out to the frame for a second. He reigns. You're not here accidentally. God is not wringing his hands thinking, oh no, how do we get out of this thing? The son of God is asleep in the boat, okay? He's completely at peace. It's you and I are running around like our hair on fire. Oh no, we're going to die. We're going to die. That's what the disciples were doing in the boat. 
But Jesus led them out there, and he's asleep in the boat, completely at peace. Not asleep at the switch, but asleep in that he's at rest. Because he knows also, just as well, see, that he was sent into the storm. That he was sent to be in the storm. That, that's why he is there, right? When in John 12, he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, and my soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, it is for this hour I have come. Jesus knows that he has been sent into the storm. And Peter, in, first, in the whole book of 1 Peter, is basically saying to the church, you're in the storm, and this is where God has called you to be. Now, don't be surprised. 1 Peter 4. In fact, sanctify Christ in your heart, and always be ready. You get ready to go to work. Be ready to give a reason when anybody asks you for the hope that's within you. Because you're going to look weird in this storm, because you're going to be asleep in the boat, and people are going to be like, what the heck? Be prepared to tell them why you're at peace in the midst of this storm. And the way you get at peace in the storm is you sanctify Christ in your heart. This is where the church dwells. We dwell in these stormy waters. And the psalmist is lifting this up. He's, he's simply acknowledging this to God. And again, this is, how, how what are, are these stormy, sure, there are circumstances, sure, it's COVID, sure, it's an economy, sure, it's global problems, it's all that, but there's something deeper underneath here that the church has to deal with. And I go back to Psalm 2 for this. In, in Psalm 2, the, the psalmist begins with the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord, and against his anointed, right? The, the, the psalmist is kind of dumbfounded in Psalm 2 by the stupidity of a world that rages against God. But notice in that psalm, it's not just against God. Why do the nations rage and plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? Now, we know that Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm, and this psalm is ultimately pointing forward to Christ, and the world raged against Christ, the anointed, right? But, but I read Psalm 2 in this case to be also you and me, right? We are the anointed of the Lord because we are united to Christ. And the raging of the world and the plotting of the nations and the principalities and the powers, again, this is why I love Revelation so much, because it unmasks this. It says this is the story you're living in, one in which the principalities and powers will use anything. They will use the terror of COVID. They will, they will use uh, racial discrimination stuff. They will use a terrible economy. They will use stuff in Afghanistan. They will use the pleasures of prosperity. They will use anything to destroy the Lord and his anointed. Now, they will fail. The Lord in heaven, Psalm 2, we're told, laughs. He reigns. But that will not stop the devil in some, in, uh, in Revelation 12, who will come after the offspring of the church, right? The people of God, because he knows his days are short. But he is intent on destroying the church, the people of God, the anointed of God. If I can't get him, then I'll get them. This is the world, the context in which the people of God have always been, have always been. The story of the Bible is a story of people in a storm. 
It's the story of people in a storm. I think this is why the Hebrews were not people of the sea. You don't read many stories about them on the waters. In fact, usually when they're around the waters, it's not good. Even pre-Israel, right? The story of Noah, where we see the mighty waters. It's a story of deliverance through the waters and back to dry land. The waters represent the judgment. The waters represent the chaos. The waters represent the raging of the nations. And Israel's trying to escape it. They, they get out on the water in Noah and they get through it and the Lord plants them on dry land. They're leaving Egypt and on the one hand, you have raging nation coming against them and what are their backs up against? The sea. They got the sea on one side, the Red Sea, and they got the sea on the other side, the army of Pharaoh. And what does the Lord do? He has to subdue the sea. He splits the sea. He tears it open like the grave so that Israel can pass through it on dry land. He didn't give them a bunch of boats even. He just rips and gives them dry land in the midst of the sea so they can get over to the other side. And when the rebellious servant of God is called to go to Nineveh, he jumps on a boat and hops out on the sea and it does not end well for Jonah. The Hebrews in the sea don't really get along well. And in that sense, neither do the people of God throughout all history, as the sea represents the fomenting nations, principalities, powers, cursed age in which we live. And this is where we have been planted. It's interesting, isn't it, going back to 1 Peter 3, that the mark of God's people in the new covenant is in the water. That you go into the water, or the water's put over you, but... You get the symbolism. You're put into the water and submerged under it and then brought out again to dry land. So in in a very real sense, it's like you've already been through the worst of it. The water's already done its stuff to you in Christ. right? You've already gone into the sea. What can the sea do to you? It's, almost, it's as if your baptism is communicating this to you in the context of Psalm 93. In Christ... You have gone into the deepest part of the water. And and you know that in the symbolism of baptism, the going down into the water, you know, symbolizes the death that we die, right? That we've died with Christ and we are raised with Christ. And it is Christ who has gone into the deepest death. It is Christ who has been overwhelmed by the waters. The waters roared. All the nations raged. Jew and Gentile alike conspired together to crucify the Son of God. And in the stormy sea at Golgotha, the storm raged and overcame him. And yet on the third day, he came forth onto dry land. Like the great Noah, like the ark of that, that led its way through. It seemed like it was being overwhelmed by the waters, but came through into dry land. And so now you in your baptisms are united to that in such a graphic way that you have gone down into the waters. But it's only baptismal waters. You know why? Because Christ has gone into the real waters. And your going into the baptismal waters represents your union with him. And you have gone down into death. Not yourself, but in him and come out onto dry land. 
here you are. You've already had your water ordeal. But it's the water. It's in the water. It's by the water that the Christian has to serve. But it, we don't need to fear it. We don't need to be troubled by the floods lifting up and the, the voice of the waves crashing over. We don't need to be afraid of that. And of course, that brings us to the frame, the beautiful frame. Because we can identify with the stormy waters in our lives. And again, like the disciples on the boat, we are so easily distracted away from the one who's in our boat. There he is, the son of God. And he's at peace. But I'm not. And if he doesn't react like I react, then I actually think he doesn't care. In fact, that's what they say to him. They roused him up and they say, don't you care that we're about to die? You must not care. Because if you cared, you'd be acting like I am. You'd be, you'd be running around with your hair on fire in this boat instead of sleeping there. But Jesus is at peace. He knows that the Lord reigns. We're the ones with our hair on fire. So there we are in the boat. Like the disciples, so easily distracted by our doctor's visits, which can be very scary. I don't deny it. The, the storm again Jesus in John 12 my soul is troubled he was dealing with the infinite wrath of his father but my soul is troubled it, the wind and the waves trouble you oh, that's okay Jesus was troubled going into Golgotha you got the doctor's appointment we watched the news We're worried about our job. These things are real. They trouble us. That's not the issue. Being on the boat and being troubled by the storm and seeing it, that's not an issue, but it's what do we do with it? How do we react when we see these things? And too often, like the disciples, again, our eyes get off of Christ and onto the storm, and we're just overwhelmed because what do I do about it? How do I fix this? How do I make sure that we're preserved through this? When meanwhile, there in our boat is the Son of God. The one who has authority over the wind and the waves. He speaks. They stop. They they don't blow. The wind of this storm doesn't blow for one more second than the one in my boat allows it. And the minute he stands up and says, peace, it's over. And we might wonder why he doesn't say peace earlier. We might wonder why the heck he let us out in this boat to begin with. If you've got that kind of authority, then don't you have the authority not to let the storm come at all? Don't you have the authority to have foreseen this and not taken us out on the boat? Maybe we spend this night on shore and then travel tomorrow when the weather's better. But that's not for you to say. He's the one who reigns. He's the one who has the wisdom. And he is the one who has the authority. And he is with you. He is in your boat. He's not just a character in the story. He's in your boat. He calls you friend. Right? You are his disciple. He's with you. He's for you. Even in the midst of the storm. So we, we, we struggle with this. And that's why the frame is so important. I want it to encourage you today. Again, it begins, the Lord reigns. 
again, go back to Revelation. And in Revelation, the sea does manifest itself in the story. You have the flood in, in uh, Revelation 12 that then, you know, is, is like this torrent that's coming after uh, the people of God. In the very next chapter, in chapter 13, a beast shows up. It gets worse. A beast shows up, and guess where he comes from? He comes up out of the sea to destroy the people of God. Right? This beast comes out of the sea. This beast comes out of the nations. The sea representing the fomenting nations in this case. To destroy the church. The sea manifests itself in this book. But what's really interesting is that in the beginning of the book, in the beginning of the vision in chapter 4, when John is taken up in the spirit before the throne room of God and gets to kind of see to begin the whole vision, there's going to be some crazy stuff in here. There's going to be some scary stuff in here. But to begin it all, John is taken up in the spirit to the throne room of God. The first thing he says he sees is a throne. Like the Lord reigns. He sees a throne. And he doesn't describe, he doesn't say what God looks like. He just say, he just describes colors. The one who's seated on this throne. But then he mentions the sea. And he says, and before this throne that's encircled by this rainbow is a sea, a sea like glass. And this now sets the stage for the rest of the book because out of the sea down below is going to come some really scary stuff. And the waves of the flood are going to try to overwhelm the people of God. The beast is going to come out of this sea and so forth. But the vision begins with God on his throne reigning before a sea of glass, peace. For God, there are no waves. For God, there is no tumult. For God, the waves, are, that's why he laughs when the waves raise their voices down below and rage against the Lord and against his anointed. He says, peace, and it's a sea of glass. And before his throne, it's nothing but peace. Nothing, nothing is unsettling his purposes. Nothing. Nothing that's swirling around in your life, nothing that's swirling around outside this building and all the affairs and concerns of man. Do you know what God says to Isaiah? He says, Isaiah, the affairs of the nations, all the nations, the affairs of the nations are like dust on the scales to me. He says they are less than nothing. All the stuff that just makes us fall apart, all the stuff that just seems so big and unmanageable to us, the Lord says in Isaiah, is less than dust on the scales. It is literally nothing to me. And yet our hair's on fire. We think we're going to die. And we're mad at him that he's asleep. It is less than nothing to him. doesn't mean he doesn't care about it. It just means to him, complete sea of glass. The Lord reigns. This doctrine, which is precious to us as Reformed folk, of the sovereignty of God, is one that must be at the very epicenter of your theology. And you must meditate on it. That God is not a player in the play. He is sovereign over it all. 
The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. You're so bothered by the storm. Look at him. He, there he is reigning on his throne, clothed with majesty. John can't even describe it. He just says, it's the color of Jasper and Carnelian. I don't know. It was, it was brilliant. And I just know that there was a, 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 a look like a circular rainbow surrounding him. The Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. He is sovereign and he is omnipotent. Omnipotent. That means all powerful. That means there is nothing that can challenge his power. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Think about that. <laughs> Think about that in a society which thinks it can change nature to fit its desires in a multitude of ways. And, and, and by the way, all this amazing stuff with the medical stuff that we see, which is so humbling and so awe-inspiring. And I mean, I call these guys at Columbia rock stars all constantly. I just, I almost cry. When Dr. Patel called my sister, I almost cried. These guys are so awesome. And the fact that he called my sister back, he said, give me five minutes. I mean, guys, a vascular surgeon in Columbia. He calls my sister back in five minutes. Get him to us. And immediately... When my temperature came down, I was like, whoa. If we get into Columbia, whatever happens there happens because those guys are awesome. And they are awesome. And yet it's deceiving. It's deceiving. Right? Because you start to think you can beat death. <laughs> you know, just how can you not fix this? I remember when they were at Vassar, like, this is all we can do. I'm on the phone in Charles. I'm like, how can that be all you can do? Like, I don't believe it anymore. You must be able to fix this. Because we can do anything. You start to think that. It gets very deceiving. We have it so good and so amazing. But it's not true. It's not true. God is sovereign. God is sovereign and we must be trained and train ourselves to look to him. The world cannot be moved. You can't move it. His decrees are certain and sure and no one, no doctor, no piece of legislation, no decree from the science, no decree from the World Health Organization, no decree from this prime minister or that governor or whoever or the local public school system or our colleges or anybody can change it. This is the reality. You're the creature, not the creator. God has established his decrees and they will not be moved. He's sovereign. His throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. That is, he didn't just come upon the sovereignty. He is sovereign, has been sovereign. He has reigned. He is reigning. He will reign. It ends, Revelation ends with him upon his throne. And now the lamb with him on his throne. And we with him. But he has been reigning, he is reigning, he will reign. He is from everlasting and to everlasting. And now jumping down to the backside of the frame. The Lord, is high, the Lord on high is mightier, mightier than the noise of many waters. I don't care how, how strong they seem, how loud they are, how overwhelming they seem to be. The Lord is mightier. It's not even like he's a little bit mightier. 
Like he, I think he can win this thing. It's not on the same plane. All the wind and the waves are happening in the palm of his hand. The minute he does that, it's over. Satan is upheld in the palm of God's hand. Now you can ask why. God won't tell you. But Satan is in the palm of his hand. Satan, Satan does nothing. He, might, he comes to God to ask about Job. And so it's not even like, well, he's, he's more powerful. No, it's not on the same plane. He's being poetic here. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waves, mightier than the mighty waves of the sea. And he ends with, your testimonies are very sure. Right here is the psalmist coming back and reassuring himself in the midst of the wind and the waves, that what God has said about himself and about who he is for the psalmist is true. It's not just that Jesus has the authority to say peace and it stops. It's that he has said, and I'm that for you. We read it in Romans 8. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his breath. It's not just that God is sovereign over all things. That would be sufficient. That's enough. But what's so amazing about it is that, you know what his testimonies tell you? Is that he is that for you. That he will govern all things for your good. That the one before whom there is nothing but a sea of glass who loves you is working all things for your good. If you're in the boat in the midst of a storm, I know you will not understand it, and it may take until glory for you to understand it. But he has led you there, and he is with you there, and he will be with you there. And it will not do. The wind and the waves, which have done some awful things by human perspectives to believers. I don't minimize this, right? I don't minimize this. The wind and the waves have done some awful things from a human perspective to believers. Cancer has done awful things to believers. Non-believers have done awful things to believers. But here's what I do know. None of it can do one ounce, one second more to the people of God than what God ordains. In the end, he will bring justice In the end, he will reward his saints. In the end, he will wipe away every tear. In the end, he will give his people an inheritance that is not worth comparing to the sufferings of this age. You will not in glory look back on one of them and say, wow, this is really great, but that was rough. It won't even be worth comparing. That's what the testimonies of God say. And the psalmist ends by looking at these testimonies and saying, your testimonies are very sure. I know I'm in the middle of this wind in the ways, but here's what I know about you. You reign. And you are omnipotent, and you are from everlasting to everlasting, and you are mightier than these waves, and I'm in the midst of these waves. And I know you're sleeping on that boat, but I'm going to let that tell me that you are sovereignly at peace, not that you don't care. And I trust your testimonies, for they are very sure, and holiness adorns your house forever, O Lord. You are good. And I trust you in the midst of the storm. A short psalm, but much to meditate upon there. And I encourage you today, because we are in the midst of such turbulent, stormy 
sees, culturally speaking, nationally speaking, politically speaking, racially speaking, economically speaking, medically speaking, personally speaking. Let this be your comfort. Remember this, if nothing else, the Lord reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of it all, we may have this solid ground to plant our foot upon, namely the truth that you reign, that in heaven you are seated firmly upon the throne, that before you is a sea of glass, and what appears to us to be an outrageous storm is nothing but a sea of glass to you, through which you will accomplish all of your inscrutable and immutable purposes. Give us confidence that the psalmist had to know that your testimonies are sure, Father. Strengthen us as we walk out of these doors into whatever storms await us, that you may be glorified and that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. For we pray this in his name. Amen.